First Peter, we're going to read a little passage out of this little, little book, but before we jump in, um, give you a little background. We started a series uh, through looking at the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, typically, uh, as a church, we go through books of the Bible. We let God speak to us word for word, chapter by chapter, uh, through books of the Bible, um, but we've kind of taken a little bit of a diversion from that to just spend a little time on a subject, and the subject in this case, happens to be the person of the Holy Spirit, as well as his work. So uh, if you guys don't have Bibles, I'm just reminded as well, if you can, please, you can raise your hand. We have some ushers that would love to get you guys a Bible. If you guys don't own one, please keep it. It's our gift to you. Um, so the person, the work of the Holy Spirit is what we've been looking at. Uh, we've taken the past several weeks to look at this. I think we're around week 10 or week 11, so something like that, looking at that. We've got a few more weeks left to go uh, looking at who the Holy Spirit is. Um, question why, why are we looking at the Holy Spirit, why we want to understand a little bit more about this, and I think uh, typically when we talk about Christianity, uh, it's easy in a lot of ways for us to understand God as Father, um, it's easy for us to understand a little bit of uh, God as Son, Jesus, uh, but when we begin to talk a little bit about the subject of the Holy Spirit, it's a little bit uh, fuzzy, it's a little bit challenging, and part of that I think is due to the fact that he's referred to as the Spirit, Holy Spirit, which means Father and Son are both tangible realities that we can look to within our culture and our society, our world around us, and identify uh, by the very nature of spirit. There's nothing to really kind of uh, relate the subject or the person of the Holy Spirit to. Um, there's, there's no uh, tangible reality because by nature he's spirit. So it's a little bit uh, more challenging for us to understand a little bit about who the Holy Spirit is. So oftentimes what we do is we oftentimes just forget about who the Holy Spirit is we are, or we ignore him. And what we don't want to do is we don't want to be a community of people that ignore the, really, the, the work of the Holy Spirit. We're, in other words, to ignore the Holy Spirit is really to ignore God. We don't want to be ignoring God. We believe that God has uh, a lot in store for us. And what we want to do as followers of Jesus uh, is to really understand all that God has to say about himself. Now, obviously, we're not going to be able to know everything there is to be known about God because God doesn't reveal everything there is to be known about himself. But what God does reveal to, himself, to us about himself, uh, we, we want to apply our minds and our hearts and our thoughts to understand who this is. So we've been looking at the person, the work of the Holy Spirit. So we've been looking at very subjects of the Holy Spirit and how he interacts and works with people. So for example, last week, we looked at specifically the role of the Holy Spirit within worship. And one of the things that we looked at was not so much the idea of singing, but more so the concept of the posture, uh, how to develop a posture of worship, and how the role that the Holy Spirit plays within that. Today, what we'll be taking a look at is really the subject of the Holy Spirit and the role of sanctification. I realize some of you like, sanctification, what does that mean? It's a big word. Uh, I, I'm, I'm familiar with the fact it's a word that, in a lot of ways, we don't simply use very often, because for the most part, the very word sanctification, or some of its uh, cousins, uh, like consecration or holiness, are words that we really, for the most part, do not use outside of a religious connotation. Um, So we typically don't really use the word sanctification very much, but it is a Bible word. It's a word that appears within Scripture. It's a word that if you're a follower of Jesus, you, you should want to know what Scripture has to say about everything, even though there are things that a lot of ways uh, may not make a whole lot of sense in a natural context. Um, we should have a desire or curiosity to really look into these things and at least familiarize ourselves with these various topics. In this case, we're going to be looking at the person of the Holy Spirit in relation to the subject of sanctification. So before that, I'll explain uh, what sanctification is and its role and all these other things. But before we jump into all that, I want to pray first and just uh, ask God's leading, guiding over this time. So, uh, God, we ask you right now that you would open our hearts to know who you are, God, that this morning we're not just simply here to learn information or facts. We want to know who you are. We want to learn who you are, God, so that we would better love you. Uh, God, things that are in our lives that would be hindrances to loving you or hindrances to us giving ourselves over to you, God, we want to, we want to know what those are so that we can deal with them. So that we can then, really at the end of the day, better give ourselves to you. Better love you. Better walk with you. So, Jesus, help us, we pray, and we commit this time in your hands, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I want to read uh, the passage out of 1 Peter, and then we'll read one out of uh, the writings of Paul, but first, let's jump into the one in 1 Peter. 
I'll make a couple of very brief comments about this as we look at this. Uh, but this is the book of First Peter. Peter is writing to a group of Christians that are scattered all around uh, the known world in that particular day. So if we're going to read a couple names of cities that, for the most part, many of us have probably never heard of. Uh, but they were actual real cities. It'd be kind of like if you were to transfer yourself 2,000 years in the future and talk about cities that may or may not actually be in existence 2,000 years in the future. So that's kind of the way this is. So here's what Peter has to say. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit. There's a phrase that we want to look at, the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with blood. May grace, peace be multiplied to you. Now, that's a mouthful. There's a lot that's being spoken there. Some of it may have been easily just checked out. But in short, what Paul's, or Peter's doing is he's writing to a group of believers, followers of Jesus, that are literally scattered in all sorts of cities. That's what Pontus is, Cappadocia, Bithynia. You know, those are actual cities. It'd be kind of like in modern days, he'd be writing to the Christians that are in San Francisco, the ones that are living in San Luis Obispo, the ones that are down in Orange County. That'd be kind of the idea in which Paul, uh, Peter Eden, Paul as well, when they would write letters to scattered Christians, is kind of what was going on. But there's a phrase that he uses. He describes them as exiles. And really, an exile is someone that is uh, living in a foreign country, though they may not necessarily be a native citizen of that country. And that's a very unique phrase that Peter uses. And the idea really is, uh, I, I think, an, a very poignant idea, especially for us today as Christians. Because the fact of the matter is, and I think because of the rapidly changing pace of American culture, that there is a reality that for us as followers of Jesus, even though culture by and large may change or shift from being sort of a Judeo-Christian baptized type of a, uh, an ethic to one of being more secularized, a Christian shouldn't freak out. We shouldn't completely lose our peace. But what we should realize more than anything is that we are really, for the most part, just like the early church. We're exiles. We live as a society or as a sub-society within a society, meaning God has a family or community within the larger community. That community that God has, we call it church. That church lives within the larger community that we call that larger community, America. Now, the two rules that govern each society are, there's a lot of rules that kind of overlap. They're really consistent with each other. They're, they're similar. In other words, you know, things like stealing are pretty much the same in God's society as they are in society of America. In other words, if you steal, it's going to bring consequences. It's going to cause pain and destruction and hurt upon both societies. But there are also rules and regulations and ideas and uh, things of that nature for the most part that are really incongruous. But the point that Peter is saying is that you are exiles following Jesus, part of this community, this society of God in the larger community. In his context, it would have been Rome. But the main thing that he, that I really want to focus on that he points out is he uses the phrase, you are sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So again, what we're really focusing on is how and what the Holy Spirit does. In this case, we learn uh, amongst other things. In fact, chapter 1, verse 2 is a really fascinating verse because it describes kind of this triune nature of God. Uh, oftentimes, if you've heard of the phrase, God is Trinitarian in nature, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Uh, chapter 1, verse 2 of uh, 1 Peter is this great passage that reveals that. It says that God, the Father, foreordained you, meaning he called you from before you were actually saved or became a Christian. God was doing something even before all you know, this happened in our life. So God the Father's at work, and then describes the Holy Spirit sanctifying you. So the Holy Spirit's doing some work. And then finally describes Jesus as washing us uh, with the sprinkling of his blood, which is kind of a phrase borrowed from the Old Testament. Sprinkling of blood is a little bit creepy. We're like, what does that mean? That's weird. Are they going to get weird at church? No, we're not going to do anything weird, but we're going to make an allusion to a weird or foreign practice, and that's what Peter is doing. The idea of sprinkling blood is they would take uh, a branch, they would dip it in blood, and then they, the priest, the high priest, again, this is like 3,000 years ago, would sprinkle it upon the people. The implication is that something innocent died for guilty people, and those guilty people that receive the sprinkling of blood, I know, really weird, um, receive, in a sense, the innocence of that guilty or that innocent creature that died. So, again, the point that I really want to focus on is the phrase sanctification of the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit is the one that does this 
large task that's described as sanctifying. So, big question that's on our mind, really three big questions that we're going to really concern ourselves with today. One is, what is sanctification? Then we'll take a look at the question of what hinders sanctification. And then finally, what motivates sanctification? So the big question is, what is sanctification? Um, We have to take a moment to think about this because, again, like I mentioned earlier, uh, the word sanctification is a word that a lot of times we just simply do not use. And if we do use it, if we hear someone using it, it's always within a religious connotation. It may not always necessarily be correct. So with that being said, the tendency is sometimes to take big Bible words like this and either A, ignore them and not deal with them because it's like, ah, those are archaic words. They don't make a lot of sense in today's culture. They're completely irrelevant to today's world. So let's not use that word. I would suggest a better framework is to actually say, let's use those words. Let's try to understand what the words mean because by understanding what those words mean, we put them in the context of what the Bible is actually trying to communicate. That shouldn't be that difficult or that foreign for us of a concept to understand. Let's say, for example, if you are going to take up a new hobby or you're going to become part of a, I don't know, a fantasy football league or so, something like that, you've got to learn the league, you've got to, the league rules, you've got to learn the lingo, the, the, the words, the framework of which all of this stuff is fixed upon. So sometimes you've got to invest your mind, your heart, your thoughts in terms of learning new information. So in other words, if you're going to get a job at a new place, you need to learn kind of the culture in which how that job functions and works. It's a very normal concept for us, for the most part, to operate. So it's really no different with regard to Christianity. So, for example, if you're a Christian here today, you should want to learn what words like this mean. If you're not a Christian, uh, glad you're here. What we would hope is that, if anything, you could walk away um, learning a little bit more about what Christian, the uh, Christian faith is all about. So with that, let's try to understand the word sanctification. The word that's actually used there in the Greek for sanctification uh, is actually translated in at least three different ways in the New Testament. Uh, three different ways in which it's translated is the word that we just saw here, sanctify or sanctification. Another word is consecration. Some of your translations actually may have actually uh, translated as through the consecration of the Holy Spirit. Another word that is uh, uh, also part of a root word of that word system is the word holiness. So all three of those words, holiness, consecration, sanctification are all kind of words part of the same family. So with that being said, let's try to take a look at the large word category, which is the word holiness, and ask the question, what does holiness mean? All right, so what I'm going to do next is I want to take a moment to try to define what holiness is. Um, Fortunately, there's a really great video that I actually have, I'm going to show you guys, that does a really excellent job doing this. I can spend myself 10, 15 minutes trying to unpack this for you and really not do that great of a job or I can show you this little six-minute video that does a far better job than myself, and it comes free with great animation. So uh, let's roll that little clip right here. It's about holiness, what holiness is. Hopefully it'll make some uh, sense to you guys, and we'll get on with the rest of what this is all about. You've probably heard the word holy before, or at least sang it in a church song once or twice. And for most people, this idea is really just connected to being a morally good person. So God is holy because he's morally perfect. Yeah, that is part of it. But in the Bible, the idea of holiness is even bigger and more rich. What it's really describing is how God is the creative force behind the whole universe. He's the one and only being with the power to make a world full of such beauty and life. And so all these abilities, they make God utterly unique, which is the meaning of the word holy. So a helpful way to think about God's holiness is by using the sun as a metaphor. The sun is unique, at least within our solar system, and it's really powerful. It's the source of all this beautiful life on our planet. And so you could say that the sun is holy. And you can actually take this metaphor even further in that the whole area around the sun is also holy. Yeah, because the closer you get to the sun, the more intense it gets. Yeah, exactly. So that very power and goodness that generates all this life is also dangerous. I mean, the sun, if you get too close, will annihilate you. And in the same way, there's this paradox at the heart of God's own holiness. Because if you're impure, his presence is dangerous to you. And not because it's bad, but because it's so good. And so the first time we see this paradox of God's holiness, it's in the story of Moses and the burning bush. So God tells Moses to take off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground. 
And Moses covers his face in fear, and God says, hey, don't come any closer. It's intense. It's actually that intensity of God's holiness that's explored even more in the stories about Israel's temple, which was the main place where God's holy presence was located. And at the center of the temple was this room called the Most Holy Place. It's the hot spot of God's presence. And whether you're an Israelite living in the land around the temple or a priest working right in the temple, you're in proximity to God's holy presence, which is dangerous. Yeah, this is a problem. So how's it supposed to work? Well, in the Bible, the solution is that you need to become pure. So like being morally pure. Yeah, and that's easy enough to understand. But the Bible spends a lot of time talking about another kind of purity, being ritually pure, which is a state where you separate yourself from anything related to death, like touching things like diseased skin or dead bodies or even certain bodily fluids. All these make you impure. And becoming ritually impure isn't necessarily sinful. What's wrong is waltzing into God's presence when you're in an impure state. And so that's why God gave the Israelites very clear instructions for knowing when they were impure, steps to become pure, so that they could go into the temple again. So that's what the book of Leviticus is about. Right. But it doesn't stop there. This idea keeps developing. So later in the scriptures, we find this really interesting story by a prophet named Isaiah. And he has this crazy vision where he's in the temple and he's right in God's presence. He's totally terrified. Yeah, he knows the rules. He shouldn't even be in there. And he's worried about being destroyed. And then this crazy creature called a seraphim. Yeah, that is a crazy creature. (laughs) Totally. So it flies over with a hot coal, and then it sears Isaiah's lips with the coal and says something really weird. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. So this burning coal somehow makes Isaiah pure. Yeah, it's remarkable because normally if you touch something impure, it transfers its impurity to you. But now here's this new idea where you have this coal, this very holy and pure object, and it touches Isaiah and it transfers its purity to him. Isaiah is not destroyed by God's holiness. He's transformed by it. I mean, the implications of this are just huge. But there's one more development. This time from another prophet, Ezekiel. And he has this vision where he's standing at the temple and he sees water trickling out from it. And then that water turns into a stream and then it grows into a deep river that starts flowing through the desert, leaving this trail of green trees behind it. And then it flows into the Dead Sea, making everything fresh and alive. So instead of becoming pure first and then going into the temple, here God's holiness comes out from the temple, making things pure and bringing them to life. What does it all mean? We don't know until we meet this man, Jesus. And he claims that he's fulfilling all of these ancient visions, but in surprising new ways. So Jesus, he went around touching people who are impure, people with skin diseases, a, a woman with chronic bleeding or dead people. And when he touches them, their impurity should transfer over to Jesus But instead, Jesus' purity transfers to them and actually heals their bodies. Jesus is like that holy coal in Isaiah's vision. Right. And Jesus claimed that he was the human embodiment of God's own holiness and that he and his followers were now God's temple so that through them, God's holy presence would go out into the world and bring life and healing and hope. And so this is why Jesus described his followers as having streams of living water flowing out of them. So this is our part of the story where we find ourselves now. But... Where's this all heading? So the last pages of the Bible end with a final vision about God's holiness. This time it's by a guy named John. And in his vision, we see the whole world made completely new. The entire earth has become God's temple. And Ezekiel's river is there flowing out of God's presence, immersing all of creation, removing all impurity, and bringing everything back to life. Good, huh? Kind of. Well, if you liked it, awesome. Um, so the idea of holiness, as was described there, uh, flows into or connects with the other two words I described, consecration as well as sanctification. So what we're told is the Holy Spirit sanctifies, sets apart people for his own good purposes. So a lot of scholars have kind of wrestled with, like, exactly how does this work? What does this look like? And there's basically two aspects or two ways to think about what sanctification is. And so on the next slide, 
uh, take a look at a couple things. One, sanctification is both. On the one hand, it's a truth about followers of Jesus. So this carries with it sort of an objective reality. In other words, this doesn't shift. It doesn't change. It's not uh, contingent upon how you feel. In other words, you might feel uh, something other than this. But if you are a follower of Jesus, you are sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So there's an objective reality, irregardless of how you feel. Scholars also recognize there are moments throughout the scripture that describe uh, or gives us commands to be holy. So one example of this is God says to his people, be holy for I'm holy. So the idea is uh, it's a command. It's, it's, uh, it's an instruction. Do something. Here's what I want you to do. Be holy. Act like me. It's the act of what we would say sanctification. So the second aspect of this is that it's a process of growth which followers of Jesus live out by the choices that they make. So in other words, you can think of this in terms of the every single day choices that you make to follow Jesus, to follow God. And that's the big uh, umbrella way of kind of viewing this. Um, Most of the times when people think of holiness or uh, sanctification, they think of a series of choices that just simply are done to exclude bad things. Like holy people are those that don't go to R-rated movies or don't drink alcohol or don't smoke cigarettes. So in other words, oftentimes holiness gets mistaken for all these things that you just simply don't do. And that's only half of them. I mean, it's, it's, it, it does include that to some degree, more or less. But it's far more than that. To simply reduce holiness to just simply a, a, a series of things that you don't do is actually a form of cheapening the concept of holiness. Because it's actually greater than that. Um, just as the video described, is that what God is up to is not just simply creating a bunch of people that stop doing bad things, but God is creating people that also partner with God to do righteousness, to do good things, to live out, to embody what it looks like to love other people. And this could be in the form of giving cups of cold water, where Jesus describes it, to people that are in need, or loving the unlovely, or showing kindness to people that, for the most part, everybody else marginalizes or writes off. So in other words, it's the idea of not only saying no to things that are corrupting influences or that are destructive or broken or lead to brokenness, but it's also saying yes to the character, the nature, what we would call the kingdom of God, the ordinances of God that lead to life, that lead to fruitfulness, that lead to flourishing, that lead to healing. So in other words, if you think of it this way, sanctification, if God is a God of wholeness, to tap into this God to be aligned with him, to be sanctified by him, means that you have access to this healing. So a life that is sanctified looks like a life that breeds and breathes out all sorts of healing. A life that is not sanctified is a life that, for the most part, is riddled with, filled with actions of death and brokenness. And our words lead to brokenness, and our actions lead to brokenness. But... Those that are sanctified by the Holy Spirit, the way that Peter starts off, not only one have this objective relationship with God, whereby they are sanctified by the Holy Spirit, but also this ongoing subjective reality whereby we say no to certain things, we say yes to certain things. This is the action, what we would call, of the activity of sanctification. So to put this in kind of another context, next slide, is the way I would kind of put it this way, is that sanctification actually addresses the questions, the big sort of life questions of who are we, the idea of identity, who are we in terms of our identity, and whose are we, the idea of ownership. Now, the concept of identity is not that far-reaching for us, because for the most part, all of us, to some degree, are trying to figure out really who we are. That's one of the reasons why we go to school, or we uh, take up a trade, or we... You, get, you know, whatever it is that we do, we get, get an apprenticeship or whatever. We are really trying to, for the most part, find out who we are, what we're good at, so that we can then fit in with society at large. It's really a question of identity, who we are. But sanctification also addresses the question of whose we are. And this is really another concept of ownership. What owns us is a way of thinking about this. Now, this might be a little bit challenging or a little bit of a stretch, but just follow with me for a second. All of us, to some degree, are owned by something, some ideal, some great desire, some great orientation, something owns us. And in reality, this is not too difficult to understand in the context of larger culture and society. Because every marketing agency gets this. That's their job. Their job is to target a certain genre, a certain people group, a certain demographic, and somehow get into their headspace for the purpose of ownership. 
In other words, the idea is just to, for example, take somebody who is used to eating really healthy cereal like grape nuts, I don't even know if it's that healthy, uh, and to try to convince them that eat, actually eating chocolate cocoa pebbles is far better. So they do it by way of advertising. They do it by way of story. They do it by way of testimony, by way of funny and fancy little narratives that somehow is the whole intention is to get you to become loyal to something else, disloyal to something else. The idea, again, is the subject of ownership. Who are we owned by? What ideals own us? What ideals lead us, govern, uh, shape the way that we think? All of us have something that shapes the way that we think. And so what the idea of sanctification is, is it not only addresses the question of who are we, but also whose are we? These are important subjects to think about. So this is really what the idea of sanctification is. The Holy Spirit sanctifies people for himself. Now, the next question I really want to begin to kind of wrestle with and tackle is really a larger question in terms of what hinders sanctification. What is it that kind of hinders it or prohibits or keeps it from happening? So with that, we've got to kind of address some of the things that are underneath. One of the simple ways in which we can answer this is that we could simply say a quick answer to this is that sin or unbelief is ultimately what hinders uh, really giving oneself over to God or consecrating oneself over to God or the idea of being, living a life that's sanctified. And to give that answer would actually be accurate. However, at the same time, it could also be avoiding some of the more specific details that go along with it. So I like to think of it this way. The idea of sin and unbelief as being sort of the framework that everything else is sort of built upon. The two things that I think are oftentimes a part of that framework of sin and unbelief is really guilt and shame. In other words, for the most part, I would suggest that one of the key hindrances to actually living a life that's sanctified, devoted, consecrated over to God is another narrative that's owning us. It's mastering us. And it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's the narrative of guilt and shame. When guilt and shame master us, it oftentimes at the end of the day begins to define us. So at the end of the day, the real master of our life is in Jesus, even though it may be in an objective way, Jesus is there in a very subjective, experiential way, we are actually mastered by guilt and shame. These are the things, the very things, that Jesus has come to set us free from. He's come to help us. He's come to deliver us not only from things that are destructive and broken and uh, corrosive, but also to life itself, to Jesus. This is the idea. So let's begin to take a look at how this kind of works out. Uh, there's a guy by the name of Dick Keyes. Uh, he is an author, has kind of written some stuff for Labrie. If you're familiar with Francis Schaeffer, it's kind of a ministry that this guy Francis Schaeffer started many, many years ago. And uh, he has this great uh, article that he had written about shame and guilt. It has some really great things to say about it. Listen to what he had to say. That guilt and shame really are, in a lot of ways, three things. Um, one, guilt and shame are actually distinct. They're separate. So oftentimes when we think about guilt and shame, we oftentimes use them together. But in reality, they're, they're very distinct from each other, uh, even though they might get oftentimes used in the same sentence. Here's three distinct ways to think about guilt and shame. Both of them, guilt and shame, can be united by the same act. So both guilt and shame oftentimes can be united by the same act. So for example, if you lied, the act of lying, so in other words, are you guilty? If someone were to say, are you guilty of lying? You'd have to be like, yeah, guilty, I lied. Um, Now you're left with the aftermath of that. Now you're left with your own thoughts, your own conscience, and now your conscience begins to just drain you because in your mind you're like, man, I lied. That's not me. I shouldn't lie. I'm not a liar. That's not the person that I am. That's not the person that my mom trained me to be. That's not the person that, you know, Jesus is developing in me. And now you feel the sense of shame because you've lied. So one is guilt. The other is shame. And in this particular context, they both go together. You can, again, think of a lot of different other types of sins, adultery, uh, all, all, you know, porn, um, all sorts of other things you can just kind of put in, fill in the blank, that oftentimes we get this. We understand this. If you're a dad, you lost your temper, you yell, you're, you're angry, you have rage. You can put these things together, and they really kind of go hand in hand. And you begin to realize that guilt and shame can begin to master you and then define you. This is, you guys making sense so far? And what that does is it prohibits you from running into God's presence and saying, God, I'm all yours. I want to be yours, God. I want to devote 
myself, my ways, all that I am over to you. Because instead of running to God, arms wide open, saying, God, take all of me, we're a little bit restrained. We're like, I don't want to go. And so typically what we do, we're like, I don't want to even want to go to church. If I go to church, kind of sit on the outskirts, and you're like, won't sing. You're like, I'm not going to sing. You can take communion. I don't want to take communion. Why? Because really at the end of the day, you are submitted in your mind to a narrative of guilt and shame. Guilt and shame. It's mastering you. Uh, there's deliverance. There's hope. There's hope through this. But the second thing is both can act independently of each other. Both can actually act independently of each other. This kind of goes both ways. So I can know that I've done something wrong morally, uh, but I can also at the same time be completely unashamed about it. So in other words, um, people can do things that are morally unacceptable or morally wrong or completely outside of God's ideal. And you were to ask them, if you were to just kind of ask them in a, in a moment of honesty, and if they were fully honest, which a lot of times we're not really honest, um, and, and it, it, they could say, I don't feel shame at all about this. I feel completely unashamed by what I just did. And some might be scratching their head like, how can that be possible? But the reality is, is that uh, the act of doing something wrong is not always associated with the shame that goes along with it. And this is simply a reality. Um, and sometimes, at the same time, we could do things or be invested in something that's not necessarily morally wrong and at the same time feel deep shame over it. So some of those examples that come to mind with that is like, say, for example, if you're poor. If you're in a society that's filled with affluence, and you're poor, you're dirt poor, you don't have money, you can't go on vacation, you can't go out to eat, all your friends are like, we're going out to eat, you're like, uh, cool, I think I'm going to go home. That, that is an act of shame. It's like, rather than saying, I don't have any money, can someone spot me? Because you're like, you're ashamed. You're like, I don't want to admit the fact that I'm poor. Uh, is there anything morally wrong with being poor? Not at all. But shame can at the same time, nonetheless, overtake you. And it affects the way that you interact with other people. It affects the way that you interface, maybe even with God. Um, some of which can also un- be unpacked in terms of like the type of car you drive or the house that you live in or what types of vacations you go on or if you never go on vacations or what type of education you get or where you got your education. I was talking with a guy not too long ago who actually immigrated here to the United States and had parents that were basically within the culture that he was from. He was an Asian culture and his Asian family, uh, really, at the, at the end of the day, there was, he was telling me the, the amount of shame that was being leveled upon him because if he did not get into a certain type of school, the shame that that would actually bring upon his family name. And he felt it. I remember just talking with him. He felt so oppressed over the fact that there was this, this, this haunting reality of shame that he would have to bear because uh, if he didn't get into the right school. So there's all sorts of things. Another one of the great ones is, is body image. There's nothing sinful about uh, having a body image that doesn't fit in with the rest of the world. But the reality is we often bear the shame of that. We feel really bad. We look at ourselves, we feel horrible. And oftentimes that can define us and that shame masters us. It keeps us from really entering into really moments of, of worshiping God, of even interacting with other people. So the point that I'd make is that uh, guilt and shame uh, can oftentimes also act very independently of each other. And finally, guilt and shame uh, can act in opposition of each other. The two can work against each other. In other words, uh, we can feel shame for doing the right thing or a sense of a certain glory in doing the wrong thing, for example. But one of the things that oftentimes gets described in the New Testament, um, for example, Peter and even John, uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Paul, write to believers by saying, don't be ashamed of, of the gospel or of me. So Paul's in prison. He's writing to other Christians that are scattered, scattered around the world. So the question, the subject matter, kind of you can imagine kind of coming up over dinner, who's that letter from? It's from Paul. Where's Paul? Paul is in actually prison. Really? You're following a guy, listening to a guy that's in prison? Like, he's a criminal. He's, you know, he's, he's an outcast. Like, why would you submit your mind and your thoughts to learn from somebody that is literally an outlaw. And, and Paul's saying, don't, don't be ashamed of me. But Paul, more importantly, would say, don't be ashamed of Jesus. Now, look at, think of it this way. We live in a culture in a lot of ways that for the past 250 years, for the most part, has at least been open to being shaped by what I would say a Judeo-Christian ethic. Uh, more and more today, in our world, our culture, it's becoming more secularized, meaning 
less and less of an affinity for Judeo-Christian values and more of an affinity towards kind of a secular, broad, uh, mainstream type of a way of just thinking. Now, this is really, in a lot of ways, thrown a lot of Christians up into craziness. They're like, oh my gosh, the world's going to hell. But the reality is, Christian history has always lived within a culture that, for the most part, either A, on the most you know, novice end, simply did not understand what Christianity was all about. And on the worst end, was completely uh, hostile towards it. This is one of the reasons why Peter writes, he says, you guys are exiles. You live in a foreign land that really doesn't get and understand the message, the story of the gospel. That's why he describes them as exiles. But the point of the matter is, is that his whole aim is to say that you are sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Live as sanctified people in the heart of that culture, that society. The temptation for us in our culture, if you're a follower of Jesus, is to become more and more acutely aware of the fact that there are radical incongruencies between culture at large, the ideas, the policies, the concepts, the laws, the morals that govern society at large as from the society we would call the church. That shouldn't shock us, for one. But what it should do is it should cause us to realize there's a temptation naturally built in there. And temptation is for us to feel ashamed. So, for example, someone can, in public, be like, hey, what's up? It's so cool to see you at church today. And you're like, ah, don't let people know. Like, like be quiet. I, don't want, I want to be known as one of those people that goes to church. That may be a very real temptation. For some people, uh, being ashamed of Christ is a little bit then different being ashamed of Christians, Right? Um, now, I think if we're all honest with ourselves, there are a lot of times people that embody Christianity that we don't want to really be associated with, right? You guys ever met those people? Nobody? You guys, you guys here? N- nobody's ever met those people? Okay, maybe some of you are those people. I know I have been those people. Um, the fact of the matter is, there is a tendency for sometimes even Christians to do things and to say things. We're like, ah, you're kidding. I can't believe that. The way that you said that, the posture in which you said that, the tone in which you said that, it's absolutely embarrassing. So it's not so much uh, an embarrassment or a shame of Christ as it is more so a shame of people that represent Christ. But the point is, is that when we see the idea of shame here, is that if we're governed by or mastered by the, op- the idea of shame, then what will happen is that it will remove us and our ability of being able to give ourselves entirely over to something else. In this particular context, the gospel. So what does guilt and shame, uh, or how does guilt and shame, I should say, really play into sanctification? So some of you might be wondering, what in the world is he talking about? Why in the world does guilt and shame have to do any way with this whole notion or concept of sanctification? Well, it has a lot to do with it in this particular context. Because... What it means to be sanctified, really the idea in terms of the subjective realm, it looks like you giving yourself entirely over to God. That's what it looks like. It looks like you making an intention in your heart saying, God, I want to belong to you. I want to give myself and all my ways and all my thoughts and all my ideas. I want to give myself entirely over to you. But if, for example you're ashamed of God, or you're ashamed of God's people, you're ashamed of yourself, or you live under the mastery of shame of your past, of your sin, or other alter, uh, you know, alternative storylines, then the last thing that you will ever do is be vulnerable before God. Let me put it to you in another context. The reality of being vulnerable with somebody, in other words, consecrating, giving yourself entirely over to somebody else, The only way that you can be vulnerable with somebody is if you trust them. If you don't trust them, you can't be vulnerable with them. Is this all making sense? So if you are living under the weight of shame and guilt, the very last thing you're ever going to do is be vulnerable. I know people that are are shamed over the fact that they've they've been divorced. I remember talking with someone not too long ago, and they were divorced. And the, the shame that they still felt 20 years past the divorce was crippling them. It was interfering with the relationship with other people. And it wasn't even their fault, but they still felt, because they grew up in a context that really, really harped upon the faultiness, the failure of divorce, that if you divorce, you can never outlive that. And so he's still living under the shame of that. So the point that I would make is that when we find ourselves mastered by guilt and shame, 
the very last thing that we can ever be is vulnerable. Vulnerable with other people, primarily vulnerable with God. So, how does guilt and shame play into sanctification? Well, if you think of it this way, the opposite of what shame and guilt are is really helpful. The opposite of guilt really is innocence or moral purity. The opposite of guilt is innocence or moral purity. When we look at the subject of holiness, holiness is moral purity and innocence. Holiness is also this reality of honor and glory, both of which define and describe God. So if we find ourselves in a position where we are riddled by, controlled by guilt, then it's the very opposite of innocence and moral purity. The opposite of shame is honor and glory. In fact, in the book of Hosea, Hosea writes to the people of Israel who were basically giving themselves away. They were basically taking the glory that God's given them and exchanging it for their own shamefulness. And God basically says, you can go ahead and have your shame because you've exchanged it. You can, you, you, you can get what you want. This, this is what you want. It's going to be yours. It's yours to its fullness. In other words, you will exchange your glory for shame. In a lot of ways, that's what humanity as a whole has done, is we've taken the glory and the innocence that God has embedded or placed upon humans, given within people that reflect God, Instead, we've turned to other things. And in turning to those other things, we've incurred or brought upon ourselves this too massively weighted problem of both guilt and shame. And these things become hindrances to our ability of being able to be vulnerable before God. So typically what we do is we respond to that guilt and shame. Now, by and large, there's several different ways in which you can think about responding to guilt and shame. I've been thinking about this a lot over the past several weeks for some reason. I'm not really sure why, but just thinking about how we respond to guilt and shame. On the one hand, uh, within the larger culture that we live in, the larger culture just says, look, if you have guilt, if you feel shame, the best thing for you to do is just, just own it. It's who you are. Don't fight it. Don't resist it. Just embrace it. Just live with it and deal with it. The other aspect is to do everything you can to live in a state of denial of it. And if you live in a state of denial, of guilt and shame, at some point it will begin to deteriorate your inside and bring pain and rage and guilt and frustration. And the best thing that oftentimes gets prescribed in moments like that is getting drunk, taking drugs, just whatever we can do to somehow drown out the pain associated with guilt and shame. But the flip side of it is that we have another response, which I'll get to in just a second here. But there's an author by the name of Brene Brown. She's uh, written a book called, what's it called? What is it called? It is called, here we go, Daring Greatly. That's it. Um, if you guys are familiar with her, she actually got really popular several years ago. She was on a TED Talk, and she became really popular after that talk. And I'm not even sure if she's a Christian, to be really honest with you. Um, but this book called Daring Greatly, she basically describes the idea of Daring Greatly as, you know, being able to be in a place where you can be vulnerable, where you can just give yourself. And in the context she's using is like, giving yourself to go get a good job or giving yourself to go do a speech that you need to do or confront somebody or be the mom that you really need to be or be the dad. You know, it's kind of a more positive type of a talk. But as I was listening to it, I have an audiobook, so as I was listening to the audiobook, you know, thinking about this in terms of the gospel context, the reality is that this is absolutely the, the situation that we oftentimes find ourselves as human beings as well. Because in the context, I would think about the idea of daring greatly, what I would call, what I would kind of uh, interpret or think about it this way, or transpose at least, into the idea of giving myself entirely over to God, to his people, and to his mission. So the idea in the context of the book, I would say, is being able to consecrate, sanctify, give myself entirely over to God, God's people, the church, as well as God's mission. So the question that I have to wrestle with, and I'm thinking through, is like, why don't we do this? What are the hindrances? What are the reasons? What are the roadblocks that keep us oftentimes from doing this? Well, in her book, she describes there's basically four shields that are oftentimes in place that keep people from daring greatly, which, again, like I would say, is just simply giving yourself entirely over to God or being vulnerable to God. She describes them, first of all, as cynicism. It's kind of just the coldness, the hardness of heart that basically is always uh, uh, sitting back with sort of a pessimism. And look, let me just pause on this and say this. I, I get it. We live in a world in which so much garbage is going on around us. 
so much garbage that happens with people that we trust. They let us down. We feel this overwhelming sense of cynicism. I get cynicism. I would say that out of this list of all of them, we'll probably critical, I'm pretty good too as well. Uh, but I'm a very cynical person. Cynicism and criticism and being critical are the two things that really at the end of the day are big, major struggles for me. And that if they begin to overtake my life, I'm a horrible person to be around. Most of you guys will never see that because I've learned how to quell that around you. But if you are around my family, sometimes you can see it. It's horrible. It's not pretty. It's things that I would look at and say that that leads me to moments of feeling ashamed. Shame in terms of it's not who I am. That shouldn't be the way that I act. I shouldn't be that way. The fact of the matter is these are things that oftentimes hinder us from being people that give ourselves entirely over to God. So cynicism. Secondly, criticism. This is sort of the idea of sitting on the sidelines and just being critical of everything. You know, this is the person that maybe would, in the context, coming to church, rather than getting in, and I mean just like, not just simply sitting there on the sidelines, but really getting in, really worshiping, raising your hands, being a part of what's happening, partaking of communion, serving, giving yourself entirely to Jesus, to his people, to the mission of God. There's this sense of criticism, like the lights are too dim, the lights are too bright, the sermon's too long, the sermon's too short, the music's too loud, the music's not loud enough, people are too crazy when they worship, people aren't crazy enough when they worship. There's enough for us to criticize over. But oftentimes what she's saying is that these are nothing more than shields that we oftentimes use to keep ourselves from pressing in, daring greatly, or in the context of giving ourselves over to God, or submitting ourselves entirely to God. Finally, or fourthly, uh, thirdly, cruelty. The idea of just being kind of, a, uh, kind of a thug. Or being honest in a way that is, is actually destructive. Saying things that may be truthful, but in a context that actually brings destruction and hurt and pain rather than healing and wholeness. And finally, she describes coolness. It's just the idea of, I'm too cool for school. Like, that's not me. That might be good for you guys. But I, I think of it in the Old Testament is... David, we're told that he was this great king and he dances before God. All right, typically kings are always intended to keep their dignity. But here David is literally losing all of his dignity by dancing before God, going absolutely crazy Pentecostal in front of God, in front of God's people. He's got a wife. Her name is, My- his name is, uh, her name is Michael, um, or probably Michal or something, something like that. But the point of the matter is, is that she sits there and judges David. She gets bitter and angry and criti- critical of David. And the point of the matter is that she never entered really into what it looks like to give herself over to God, even though David had in that context. So the final thing I want to finish with is really the question as to what motivates sanctification. This is a really important question. Because it's really easy when we talk about sanctification. The Holy Spirit uh, creates this work whereby he sets you apart. We call it sanctification. You belong to God. But there's also that active role of subjective experience of sanctification, meaning you give yourself to God, you commit your ways to God, you say yes to the things of God, you say no to the things that bring destruction and brokenness. How do we do that? Like, what motivates us to do that? What should motivate us to do that? So typically what happens is that oftentimes preachers can preach in ways that motivate people to do it out of guilt. Meaning they hear a message like this and like, oh man, I'm not giving myself enough to God. I feel really horrible about that. And God deserves a whole lot more. I better be giving myself more. And so you devote, you pray, you feel guilty. So here's what you do. You take the guilt and shame that you've already felt. You motivate it by more guilt and shame. What happens is you just simply compound destructive, corrupting influences in your life. And at some point, it will crush you. So the question is, how and what motivates us? And this is where Peter answers, I think, in a great way. And you move forward in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He just simply says this. He himself, referring to Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. For you were like straying sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. If you think of it this way, the question I asked earlier, how do we oftentimes deal with our guilt and shame? Uh, the world can oftentimes just simply say, accept it as who you are. Just remove any feelings or barriers of shame. Just accept this as who you are. 
uh, or just suppress it, deny it, take drugs, drink alcohol, download porn, do anything you can that can just remove the acuteness of shame that you feel. But the Christian response is radical. And it's also an invitation. And the Christian response is what we have is we have a God that says, look, the effect of your guilt and shame is so great that unless something is done with it, the moral impurity, the, 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 the stain upon the glory of your soul, the shame that you bear is so acute, so great, that unless something is done with it, you will always remain in the margins from me and therefore from life. So what we have in the story of God is God come into this world through Jesus. And on the cross, what we see is Jesus literally bearing what it describes as the sin of the world. That is the depiction of Christ actually carrying our shame. What we have is we have to have something done with our guilt and shame. What the Bible describes is that we have a God that comes into the world and carries our guilt and our shame. And what that does is when we accept that to the degree that you see that, to the degree that you embrace that, that has the power to wake you out of your cynicism. Do you understand? It has the power to completely disrupt your critical heart. It has the power to completely append everything in your life that is leading you, keeping you in the margins, keeping you broken, and transform you into a red-hot, thankful, grateful worshiper of a God that's rescued you. That's what the power of the gospel has in store for those that accept, hear, receive, trust, and obey. That's exactly, I believe, what it means for the Holy Spirit to sanctify you in, first of all, the objective way, meaning he separates you, and then through a subjective way whereby you come back to this God and say, God, I give myself entirely to the one who has given himself to me. So we're going to respond. We respond every week and we describe it as in song and in supper. We respond by singing. We also respond by partaking of what we call the Lord's Supper. It's also known as the Eucharist. It's a way of giving thanks. So worship team will come on up. It's a way to remind us every single week the fact that we are able to meet here as a family uh, is because of what Jesus did. It's called a sacrament or an ordinance. We partake of the bread. We drink the cup by dipping the bread into the cup as a reminder of the fact that Christ himself was broken. He bore. When you eat that broken bread, it's a reminder of the fact that you are a broken person. But we have a God who was once whole, who came into this earth and bore our brokenness so that by him being broken, we then, who are broken, could be made whole. And it's not just us as individuals but that we become part of a community that was once filled and riddled with brokenness can be part of the healing that's needed. It's one of the reasons why Paul would say there's no Jew or Gentile or male or female because all in this relationship to Christ are all made one. Healing begins to happen. That's what it means for God's holiness to then begin to move through us like this river of healing. I invite you come to that table to receive from that bread before God give yourself new fresh to this God in response to him